0: This is a Scream Queen production. These Violet Delights have Violet Ends. Violet Ends. Violet Ends. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is Violet Ends. Happy Halloween. I don't know if we've ever done an episode on actual Halloween before. Here we go. As is tradition, our Halloween episode is dedicated to listener stories. We didn't get a ton of submissions this year, but we got some really good ones. And I've got a couple of my own to share also, so I think we'll be okay. All right, let's jump right in. This first story comes from Jason in Montague, Michigan. Montague is about a hundred miles west of Lansing, so if you're looking at your hand as a map of Michigan, Montague is kind of where the second knuckle on your pinky is. <laughs> Jason says, "Hi, Jen, I'm a big and longtime fan of your podcast and love your work. Thank you for the time you put into this podcast. Really. I've gotten numerous friends to subscribe and they love your writing, research and the connection to Michigan. Thank you, Jason. Okay, that's the end of that email. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, um, here it goes. My ghost story is not an overly haunting one with demonic odors or possessed dolls, but kind of freaky nonetheless. We live in western Michigan, close to Lake Michigan, where many indigenous tribes lived. The area is known for paranormal activity, UFOs, odd lights. Even the famous Joseph Sidoni spent some time here. If you're not familiar with him or Mouth Cemetery, look those up for some freak thrills or road trip opportunities any time of the year. Okay, yeah, I'm going to have to do that because I don't, I'm not familiar with either of those things. Anyway, I live in an old 1920s home on Old Channel Trail with verified Indian mounds along the road. This area was nothing but trails for hundreds of years prior to the French and English colonization of the area. Back in the early 1900s, when these trails were being turned into paved roads, crews came across these indigenous graves and decided to leave them there and pave over them. A better option than digging them up and relocating the remains, in my opinion. So, back in 2011-ish, my son, who was 12, and I were getting ready to leave for the morning. We both had our backpacks on, TVs were off, no computers on, no toys jammed in the toy boxes going off, and of course, no smartphones in those days. The house was still sleeping. I stepped into the living room to turn off the lights, and my son and I heard, as if someone was standing directly in front of us, an adult male say, Choo-choo! Listen, it just says choo-choo in the email— I don't know how dramatic he got with the choo-choo, but choo-choo were the words that he said. As clear as day, the voice wasn't ominous or threatening, more like that of a father's voice saying it while playing trains with his child. So yeah, choo-choo, choo-choo. Okay, that's enough. I'm sorry. That's annoying. Neither of us overreacted. We just looked at each other like, did you say that? We both agreed it was time to get moving. To this day, my son and I agree it's something that neither of us can explain. In another incident a couple years later, I was having a garage sale, which always brings all the old neighbors around. I had tables set up on the front lawn. My house is surrounded by a tall privacy wall with lots of trees and shrubs you cannot see into the backyard at all. Nestled back there is a wonderful in-ground pool that was built in the early 80s, which we thoroughly enjoy during our two months of wonderful Michigan summer. At some point during the day, an old man walked up to me, and like so many neighbors do, we started to talk. He was slightly hunched over, his hands a little shaky, his eyes glazed over with a ghostly, milky hue. I picked up on a weird vibe, but it also could have just been a flashback from things I experimented with in the 90s at those mad Motor City raves. <laughs> okay, Jason. Okay, I see you. Anyway, he proceeded to talk about the house, asked how long I'd lived there, mentioned his friends he knew who lived there growing up, yada yada yada. Then, out of nowhere, like some Black Mirror episode, he creepily pointed his cigarette-stained fingers toward the backyard and said he remembered when a little boy drowned in our pool. My mouth dropped. My heart was racing, and I was scared. I didn't drill him with questions. I wasn't overly curious at the time. I would have been curious. My fight or flight kicked in, and I just didn't want to know any details. And I certainly didn't want to engage in this conversation at this time, as my young children were within earshot. Kind of a shitty thing for him to say in front of my kids, if you ask me. Okay, yeah, that for sure. But like, I would have taken down his name and number because I would have needed all the details. Have I told you guys about what the people we bought our house from said to me at the closing? I'll have to try to remember that at the end because I don't want to interrupt Jason's story any more than I already have. Okay, years have passed since then and there have been many instances of people telling me their haunting experiences in my home. Once when a friend was staying at the house while I was traveling, she heard a little child's voice say, hello, to her. (laughs) She immediately packed up and left. One Halloween while I was passing out candy, a mother stopped to reminisce about the time she was living here with friends because her family's house burned down. She was home alone and said that when she walked into the kitchen, all of the cupboard doors were opened. She immediately left the house and wouldn't return until the rest of the family came home. That got me thinking and I remembered my son saying to me once. What's up with the cupboard doors here? I thought he was talking about me closing them too loudly or something, but he was talking about them always being open when he came into the kitchen. That's fucking creepy. Anyway, the house is a good one and the ghosts honestly don't bother us and, most importantly, aren't demonic psychopaths. There's enough alive ones roaming around. True. Maybe they're just a little lost or still love the old house and want to go swimming. I've never investigated with the library or police department about any drownings in the past here. Some ghosts are best left to history and folk stories like this. To this day, I walk my dog on the bike path next to my house, which used to be railroad tracks. Choo-choo and Happy Halloween, everyone! Happy Halloween, Jason, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. This next one's short, but I want to share it because it has a thing in common with Jason's story. This one's from Amy, and she wrote, Hi, I would like you to consider my ghost story for this year's Halloween episode. We used to live in a haunted house near Jackson. The whole block had issues, and we believed it was from a cemetery that was left behind after they moved headstones. Yeah, I know, sounds like a scary movie, but it's true. I went to the library and found the map with the cemetery on it. In the 80s, a couple of bodies from the old cemetery were found when a new house was being built, and our neighbors across the street found grave markers in their front yard. I had a paranormal investigation at my house once, and investigators determined there were six spirits in the house not connected to me. Other houses on the block have also been investigated, and the entire neighborhood seems to be haunted. I need more details, Amy. Like, who are these six spirits, and what are some of the things that have happened in your house that led to you having a paranormal investigation in the first place? Tell us your stories. So the reason that I put these two stories together is because there's, you know, the old horror movie trope about houses or entire neighborhoods, being built on old Native American burial grounds and then those houses and neighborhoods becoming haunted. But it's not just the indigenous graves that we desecrate. Progress slows for no one. So these old cemeteries that were built in towns that used to be super tiny and super rural and now are growing and they need roads and they need Walmarts and they need all these things... That they can't just have this super inconvenient cemetery, be it uh, indigenous tribes or church cemeteries or whatever they are. What what do they do with them? And the answer, obviously, the moral answer is leave them alone. But that's like you guys live in the same world I do. That's not going to happen. So what's the better option? Is it better to leave the graves where they are and build over them, just removing the headstone? <laughs> Or should they be dug up and relocated, which has happened here in Lansing, but as we know when that happens, they're not real careful about it, so they don't even get entire families, entire bodies, like stuff is always getting left behind. What's the better option there? Do we move them or do we build on top of them? Because this world has made it clear that leaving them alone and respecting them is not one of The options. What do you guys think? What leads to less haunted houses? I'm really curious to know what you guys think. Before we get to our next story, I do need to thank today's sponsor. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Friends, I have been struggling lately. I'm always on the struggle bus, but it feels like the bus has broken down and is sinking into quicksand. And I know what I need to do. I need to get more rest, not try to do so many things at once, take breaks but I just can't. Do you ever feel like that? Like your brain is getting in its own way? Like you know what you should do, but you just can't do it and you don't know why? Therapy can help you figure out what's holding you back so that you can work for yourself and not against yourself. One of my biggest struggles is work-life balance, knowing when to say no, accepting that I can't do all of the things, and setting realistic goals for myself. I'm also a perfectionist, so when I don't succeed brilliantly at everything, everywhere, all at once, I'm really hard on myself. Anybody else? Or is that just me? Good news! Therapy can help you develop the tools to set boundaries and positive coping skills so that you can learn to be the very best version of yourself. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced severe trauma. It is for all of us. If you've been considering starting therapy... Give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient and flexible, and is suited to your busy schedule. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/violentends today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that is BetterHelp hel violentends and be sure to tell them I sent you. This next story is kind of a sweet one from listener Lauren. Lauren wrote, Hi, Jen. My name is Lauren. I have lived in Michigan all my life. I grew up in Langsburg, but went to Perry Schools. My dad lives in a house that has been in our family for over 100 years. My great-grandfather built it, then left it to my great-grandfather, who left it to my grandpa, who left it to my dad, my sister, and I. It started out as a viewing house, where bodies would be brought for viewings before being taken to the cemetery for burial. This never once bothered me, even as a kid. People have also died in the house, including my own mother. Before my mom passed, the doors would slam on their own and my mom would say, your grandma must be pissed off, and laugh about it. After my mom passed away in 1999, the rocking chair she used to sit in would move on its own and doors would still close on their own, but they didn't slam anymore. When I'd have friends over and weird stuff would happen, I'd say, oh, it's just my mom. They would freak out, but it made me laugh. One night, I woke up in the middle of the night, and there, just standing at the foot of my bed, was my mom, smiling at me. I told her I missed her and that I loved her, and she disappeared. I haven't seen anything like that since. This happened about a year after she died when I was 14. Apparently, she got around as a ghost because one night after she died, her best friend was at home making lasagna and the can of sauce flew across the room. She apologized to my mom for taking the easy way out and buying sauce instead of making it, but it scared the shit out of her. There was never anything scary in my house, no evil, just good spirits, and my mom. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, Lauren. I kind of love that one. That's pretty sweet. Our last listener story today is from Jana. Jana said, Hey, Jen, I have a couple of ghost stories for you. I work at a transportation company, and we deal with trains and buses providing service to the community. As most transit agencies are, we are underfunded, so most of our buildings are very old or have been utilized previously by other businesses. I was a maintenance mechanic working on the heavy rail trains, and that building was old and used by Union Pacific before us. Anyway, one night, me and another mechanic were doing a repair on the locomotive engine that required no power supplied to the vehicle. It is pretty dark in the engine room with no power to the lights, so we were working with headlamps. I was standing up and my coworker was kneeling as we were tightening bolts and such. At the exact same time, we both turned our heads to the right. I saw a shadow figure enter the barn door, which is just a large door that opens like barn doors do, of the locomotive engine bay, walk into the secondary engine room, and disappear. We both looked at each other wide-eyed. I asked if he had seen the same thing, and he said that he had. We were both a little unnerved, so we decided it was break time. <laughs> Good call. Good call. Later in the week, I mentioned the experience to other mechanics in the shop, and more than one said that they had seen a similar thing in the same area of the shop. There were many unexplained noises in that place constantly, like doors closing where there was no door, footsteps above you on the catwalk, but no one was there, things like that. A security guard reported seeing a little girl on a red tricycle once, but no one else ever saw that. We had a cleaning lady quit because she said there were too many spirits in the building. I worked alone there at night for a period of about six months, and it definitely felt like the place was alive in a way. When it was quiet at night, you could almost feel it breathing. Even though it was sometimes creepy, I do miss working in that building. Well, good on you, Jana, because I would not miss working in a breathing building at all. (laughs) Jana goes on, another experience was about 15 years ago. When I was a kid, my dad managed a haunted house during the Halloween season. That is cool. And I remember going there as a child with him. The place has since been condemned. It used to be an old paper mill called Cottonwood Paper Mill, which opened in 1880. One weekend I was bored, so I decided to go to the old mill as a nostalgic trip. When I arrived, I walked all the way around it, but didn't go past the fence. There were many places where it had been cut. Rumor is that it is used by satanic cults for rituals, but I don't know if that is true. I did see signs of people breaking into the building, and there were some strange symbols on the ground. There were also candle remnants everywhere. I snapped a few photos on my cell phone while I was there. When I was there, nothing happened. It was after I got home and went to sleep when the strange things started. I went to bed like I always do, and then around 3 a.m., I remember having this horrific dream where a husband and a wife were at the mill and having problems of some sort. The husband then shot his wife and then himself. I do not know these people. I've never seen them in my life. Fun fact, you have to have seen them at some point. Your brain literally cannot make up faces. So every dream that you have, it's real people that you're seeing, whether you saw them on TV or in a crowd and didn't even register them consciously, your brain literally cannot make up faces. Or so I've read that could be a lie because the internet lies all the time. But I just wanted to say that there because it always creeps me out to think about that. Okay, back to, sorry. I do not know these people. I've never seen them in my life. Suicide is a huge trigger for me due to a close family member taking their life, which really affected me. So all I want to do is wake up from this terrible dream that I know is a dream, but I can't wake up, no matter how hard I try. Finally, I'm able to wake up, and when I do, my bedroom had the most ominous feel to it. It seemed darker than usual, and it was almost like blackness was filling the space. I flipped on the bedside lamp, and it still felt so terrible in there. I am not religious, but I started praying to whatever there is to make it go away. Eventually, it seemed to lessen, but I didn't get any sleep for the rest of the night, and I contacted my dad in the morning and told him what happened. He was angry with me for going there, and he told me to delete all of the photos off my phone, He said the mill has a terrible history and that it was actually haunted, not just for Halloween. I didn't know any of that until he told me. I have not been back there since and I am afraid to even drive the road that it is on. I'm not sure if something attached itself to me or what happened. All I know is it was scary and I don't want that to happen again. Those are my ghost stories. I have more, but I'll save them for next year if you need more. One of my Catholic friends gave me a St. Michael medallion after the Old Mill experience, and I wore that thing for years. I even prayed to St. Michael for protection. I'm still not religious, but I am much more careful when I go to places that might be haunted. Thank you for reading this, and happy podcasting. Wow. Well, thank you, Jana. Thank you, Jana, Jason, Amy, and Lauren for sending in your stories. Before I share my scary stories with you guys, I do need to tell you about today's other sponsor, microdosing. Everybody's been talking about it, but what is it? You know that just right feeling when your body and mind are both completely at peace at the same time, like after an intense workout or a long hot shower? That feeling when you're so relaxed and focused that it energizes you? Microdosing helps you get into that zone easier and stay there longer. Our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies, which deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. I am infamous for always trying to do way too many things all at once. A terminal multitasker, if you will. Microdose gummies help me slow down, put down the phone, close the laptop, and really be where I am, whether that's taking my cats for a walk, binge watching something on one of my 47 (laughs) streaming services, or just enjoying my family's company. Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code VIOLENTENDS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that's microdose.com, promo code VIOLENTENDS for 30% off and free shipping. And as always, be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, friends, time for my ghost story. I used to have a new crazy story to share every week, but ever since we moved out of our haunted house, they've been a bit harder to come by. When I opened Dead Time Stories in Rio Town, I, of course, immediately researched the building to see if I could dig up any good stories, and I found nothing. All I found was old advertisements from when it was South Lansing Jewelry, which it was from the 30s all the way up through at least the 60s. The coolest piece of information I found was that it was an official watch setting station for the conductors who worked for Grand Trunk Railroad. So, when trains would come through the Grand Trunk station right down the street from my shop, the conductors would bring their watchers and their watchers, their watches into the jewelry shop to have them set so that they were always running on the correct time. It was like mildly interesting, but not juicy, right? I really tried to reject the idea that the building might be haunted. How basic, (laughs) you know, like a haunted bookstore that's actually haunted. Oh, wow. But we've had some things happen over the past two and a half years that we've been there that have been unexplainable. Aside from your standard run of the mill, I feel someone watching me. I hear things when no one else is in the building. My cat is acting weird. I think the first big thing happened one day a couple summers ago. It was a super busy Saturday. It was late afternoon. I walked into the back and the door to the freezer where I keep the ice cream was just hanging wide open. This is a stand-up freezer. It's airtight, which means that if like, if I go to get someone ice cream, I open it and I close it and realize I forgot something. I have to wait like 5-10 seconds before I can open it again because it seals itself shut. You can hear it do like the and vacuum seal itself shut. So this door was not going to just swing open by itself all willy-nilly. And I was pissed because that was hundreds of dollars worth of ice cream that were completely ruined. So I went back and I checked the surveillance cameras, thinking maybe like some kids went back there and opened it to be jerks or something. Nope. It opened all by itself. There was a very clear video of me going back there, getting ice cream for some customers, closing the freezer, walking back out front, and then like a minute or two passed and the door just flew open. It was so wild. Uh, This happened not just the one time, it happened another time. That time I caught it really quickly so I didn't have to throw the ice cream away, which I was happy about. And i think that I checked the videos that time. If I did, I didn't save them, but I definitely saved the video from the first time. Then about a month or two ago, it was a slow day at the shop. Maybe like a month, two months ago, something like that. It was just a couple hours before close and a couple of women had come in and left, but after they were gone, I could still hear women's voices talking in the shop. So at first I thought like maybe these ladies were just standing right outside the door still talking. But it was raining pretty hard, and the longer it went on, the more sure I was that this was not them. There was no way. They were just standing there in this pouring rain talking, right? They didn't have umbrellas or anything. Now, because Morrison was sleeping on my lap and I could not disturb him, I checked the cameras to see if maybe someone was in the store that I had forgotten had come in, but it was just me and the cats and the disembodied voice. So I freaked out, I got up, and I found that it was coming from a speaker at the front of the store. Now, I was not playing music at the time, but even if I had been, that comes through multiple speakers in multiple rooms all at once. This was only coming through the one speaker, and it wasn't music. It was a woman's voice reading a children's book about a mouse stealing a piece of cheese. Like... (laughs) What? How random. Thankfully, I had the presence of mind to get out my phone and record, so I have this on video. I watched the video a few times, wrote down the words from the story, and I have Google searched it. I have no idea still to this day what book this was. Not to mention, I have no idea how to make my sound system read children's books. So this kind of solidified my belief that we have a little ghost child at the shop. They're stealing ice cream. They're listening to kids' books. But again, how basic? Because we already did this once. When we lived in our haunted house, the most active spirit was that of a young boy, Bobby. So I really kind of kept a lot of this to myself, not wanting to seem like a wackadoodle obsessed with little ghost boys until... This past weekend was our A Nightmare Off Elm Street event in Rio Town, which was amazing. And thank you to so many of you for coming. I saw a lot of you there. One of the million things I did that day was a Haunting History of Rio Town tour. Now you might not think that I'd be able to find an hour and a half worth of stories on just two city blocks, but I did. And one of the stories I told was about the worst train derailment in Lansing's history. It happened in October of 1941 when a freight train barreling through the neighborhood at 70 plus miles per hour malfunctioned and jumped the track. Some say it was a broken switch in the track. Some say it was a broken wheel on car number 18, But whatever the case, the 18th car went airborne just as it was passing the station, and it slammed into the platform full of people waiting for the 420 train to Chicago, ripping a gaping hole in the side of the building. This then caused the cars behind it to pile up like fallen Jenga pieces, and the whole thing was just a deadly, messy disaster. The track was destroyed— The train cars were destroyed, the cargo, which was mainly produce, lots of grapes, was strewn all over Washington Avenue, the train station was severely damaged, the cars that had been parked in the parking lot were flattened like pancakes by flying train cars, and 13 people who'd been standing on the platform were rushed to the hospital. Most of them were Lansing natives. They ranged in age from 6 to 83, and their injuries ranged from superficial wounds to critical injuries. But one victim didn't make it to the hospital. 13-year-old newsboy Jimmy Smith, who was standing on the platform selling magazines to raise money to buy himself a new bicycle, was killed instantly when car number 18 jumped the tracks. Jimmy was one of five children of longtime Lansing residents, Nellie and Alonzo Smith. He was a sixth grader at Allen Street School, where he was captain of the safety patrol and president of the school's social club. He loved archery and building model airplanes. The brown haired, blue eyed boy with freckled cheeks and a mischievous grin was buried at Maple Ridge Cemetery in Holt beside his 16 year old brother, Richard, who had died two years earlier in a freak accident of his own involving a hearse. In August of 1939, Richard and a friend, whose father was an undertaker, were driving an empty casket in a hearse back to the funeral home when they collided with a car and the hearse flipped, throwing both boys before landing on top of them, killing them instantly. The pain of losing a child is unfathomable. We don't have to go through it to know that, right? But to lose two children in less than two years in complete freak accidents, one crushed by a hearse and one crushed by a train, I cannot even imagine that. And neither could the Smiths, who decided to leave the city that had caused them so much heartbreak. They moved to Long Beach, California with their surviving children. But little Jimmy is stuck here in Riotown looking for his lost bicycle, which rescue workers and cleanup crews never found, the one that he was saving money to replace. And that is the story of the little ghost boy of Riotown, who likes ice cream and stories about mice stealing cheese, apparently. <laughs> Whilst we're on the topic of Riotown ghosts, I've got one more for you a story about the ghost of Ransom Eli Olds himself, the namesake of our fabulous neighborhood and a pioneer of both the city of Lansing and the auto industry. Now, this is not a history lesson, and we've talked about Ransom before. That is a badass name, by the way. Can we please bring that back? The short version is... R.E. Olds created the Oldsmobile and the REO Speedwagon and a bunch of other shit and built Lansing's tallest building, the Olds Tower, which was the site of the worst massacre in Lansing history. And then in 1950, when he was 86 years old, he died. His body was interred in a big old fancy granite mausoleum with his name engraved above the door located in Mount Hope Cemetery. It's said that the ghost of R.E. Olds haunts this mausoleum, but for very good reason. On January 2, 1992, some 40 years after his death, someone visiting the cemetery noticed something amiss at the Olds' mausoleum. A hole had been cut in the stained glass window near the door. Not a hole, but a triangle, just big enough for a hand to fit through, and near enough to the deadbolt that once the hand was through the triangle-shaped hole, the person the hand belonged to would be able to unlock the deadbolt and open the mausoleum door. And that is exactly what happened. The Olds mausoleum was home to 13 members of the Olds family. Ransom and his wife Meta, their children, grandchildren, parents, siblings, cousins, you get it, it was a family mausoleum. It had the family in it. When cemetery officials inspected the mausoleum following the break-in, they found that eight of the 13 were missing, six urns containing the remains of seven people, as well as a pine casket that held the remains of an unidentified infant. An, un- an infant that is still unidentified. Like They have never determined who this baby was, um, but there was a baby in a coffin in this mausoleum, which is super weird to me. In addition to the mystery baby, those missing were Ransom's father, Pliny, his brother, Emery, and Emery's wife, Charlotte, who shared an urn, his daughter, Gladys, his great-grandson, Olds Anderson Falk, who died as an infant, and his in-laws, Leroy CJ and Edna Berkey. The remains of Ransom Eli Olds himself, his wife, Meta, his mother, and two of his children who died as infants went untouched. When news of this strange crime broke, rumors ran rampant. This was at the height of the satanic panic, so of course satanic rituals had to be involved, right? Who else would steal human remains from a crypt in the middle of the night, including a baby's casket? Unless it was some sort of socioeconomic statement, stealing from one of Lansing's richest, most infamous families. As it turns out, the truth was much simpler— and much more disturbing than that. On January 9th, a week after the break-in was discovered, authorities found the missing infant casket not far from the mausoleum tossed into some bushes at the cemetery. Two days later, on January 11th, a trio, a trio, a trio of very unlikely suspects was arrested. I don't know why I said it like that. That's going to bother me for the rest of my life. I'm just... Can we just say that we're going to say that whole sentence again? <laughs> 2 days later, on January 11th, a trio of very unlikely suspects was arrested following a tip called in to crime stoppers. Brothers Richard and Scott Kindy, 20 and 18 respectively, and their childhood friend, 21-year-old Patrick Wise, were conservative Christian Mennonites from a farming town just outside of Midland. Rick and Pat were best friends living together in an apartment in downtown Lansing. Rick was a graphic designer who was going through a divorce and had just come to Lansing to stay with Pat for a while. Pat was a computer programmer who'd attended classes at MSU and worked there part-time and Scott, Rick's teenage brother, lived in a Grand Rapids suburb with two roommates and worked for UPS. On December 13th, 1991, which was a Friday, the trio decided to go hang out at a cemetery in Grand Rapids because it was Friday the 13th. What else do you do, right? Then they just, for no reason at all, broke into a mausoleum. Then, for no reason at all, they started messing with the plates that cover the crypts, and one just popped right off. So they had to pull the casket out, right? And that didn't open easily, but it was nothing that 47 minutes and a crowbar couldn't fix. 47 minutes is oddly specific now that I'm thinking about it, but that's absolutely what they put in the, in the newspaper, 47 minutes. Or maybe it's a typo, and it should say 45, and I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway... They got the casket open, um, and it just so happened to contain the body of a man who had only been dead for six months. So that was gross, but not gross enough that it stopped them from stealing the rings off of his fingers. And just like that, they had robbed their first grave. They had so much fun, they decided to do it again the next night. So on December 14th, they hit up Mount Hope Cemetery in Lansing, They had no idea who the mausoleum they broke into belonged to. It was just the fanciest one there. And they had no idea that inside a mausoleum, in a cemetery, the fancy boxes they found were full of human remains. They claimed they didn't know what was in them, but they looked expensive, so they just took them. And the tiny casket with the mystery baby, they thought it was a shipping crate. With what inside it, sirs? With what inside it? Because that one was bigger and heavier than the rest, more of a commitment, if you will, they opened it right there at the cemetery. When they saw a baby inside, they felt bad, so they say. So they covered it back up and they left it there. That left them with the six urns. Once they started opening them up and realized that they were filled with cremains, not valuables, They didn't know what to do with them, so they took three of them out to Clinton County and dumped them in a pond and then took the other three back to Rick and Pat's apartment in Lansing. A couple weeks later, they went back out to the cemetery in Grand Rapids to rob some more graves. They took more jewelry, a human skull, and a headstone that said, Father. They were building quite the little display at Rick and Pat's place, and they showed it off to everyone who came over. And then the news broke that one of the mausoleums they'd robbed belonged to the Olds family, and they freaked out. So they took the remaining three urns and tossed them into the Grand River. They kept the other stuff, though. The human skull, the headstone, the jewelry. Those things were all still in Pat and Rick's apartment when police searched it. Once Pat and the Kindy brothers were caught, they just gave right up and admitted to not only the grave robberies that authorities knew about, but several in other states as well. And theft from a small airport in DeWitt, during which they also vandalized several planes. So what they said was, after they found out that they had the remains of the Olds family, they went out to that pond in Clinton County to get the urns back out of it, but they got sidetracked because they saw a, what's it called? An airport? Yes. Oh, my God. I need a nap, you guys. They got distracted because they saw an airport. And so instead of going to get the urns back, they just vandalized the airplanes (laughs) the airport. (sighs) These three. They told police everything except for why they did it. The only excuse they gave was very stew-mocker of them. It was fun. All three... That was bad, I'm sorry. All three men were convicted on multiple charges and sentenced to two and a half to ten years in prison, which isn't too bad considering they were each facing up to 30 years in prison. They did lead authorities to the locations of the six missing urns, which were all recovered. So anyway... Rumor has it that the ghost of Ransom Eli Olds now haunts his mausoleum, keeping his family members safe from slack-jawed yokels that collect human remains. And that, friends, concludes our 2023 Halloween episode. Thank you all so much for joining me today, and thank you again to everyone who sent in stories. We've got one more episode this year, our season finale, which of course will be about a Michigan massacre. Everyone have a safe and happy Halloween, and as always, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.